As I was singing that song, oh dear friends, I wanted to jump up my seat. Because indeed there are no more greater truths that we can remember, that we can declare, than to declare that my weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest. Or the last line that we have sung, my God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Well, friends, I pray that today, if you have not experienced the rest that God can give us, I pray that you would do so today. If you have not experienced the mercy of God, I pray that you would do so today. And in some ways, the passage we're going to be looking at today speaks about the, the necessity, the danger of not relying on the rest that the Lord provides for his people. And the reality that we can be a rebellious people who rather than resting on what God provides for us, we keep trying to fix ourselves in our own ways. Would you open God's word to the book of Isaiah chapter 30? We'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 31 verse 9. Um, If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, Uh, We encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find uh, our passage in those Bibles on page 590. As you turn your Bibles there, I want to let you know, if any of you are here for the first time, we are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah, asking God to show us some glorious truths, some wonderful truths uh, from this book. It's a book rich of uh, images, rich of um, challenges, rich of confrontation rich of a declaration of God's mercy as well. So this morning, let's look at God's word as we want to hear from him. This is the word of the Lord, Isaiah 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn people, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame. Through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beast of the Negev. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent, they carry their riches on their backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless. And empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. 
Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despised this word and trust in oppression and, per and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth and to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore you, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread and pro the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys at work, the ground will eat seeds and fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of the seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of His people and heals the wounds inflicted by His blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overwhelming stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a brittle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, 
and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause His majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of His arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when He strikes with His rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, He will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the knit it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance, the breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion, or a long lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts this morning. Father, you show us your majesty in the face of the rebellion of your people. Lord, would you speak to us with these words that you have revealed long ago? Speak to us today your truth. Penetrate any heart that is filled with rebellion. Father, we pray that you expose our rebellion and that you'd lead us to turn away. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts for the glory of Christ and through his power. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, last week we have looked at chapters 28 and 29 and saw 
in those chapters, three messages of warnings or caution, uh, and all started with the word ah. In chapter 28, verse 1, in chapter 29, verse 1, in chapter 29, I think verse 15. In those messages, Isaiah challenged Judah and Israel, uh, but particularly Judah, to consider God's ways carefully. In our text, in chapter 30 and 31, we see another ah word, starting in chapter uh, 30, and then a woe, starting chapter 31. In other words, this means that, that these two chapters continue the similar messages of warning that God started in chapter 28. Actually, in this section of Isaiah, in this third section of Isaiah, we'll see six of these messages. We covered three last week. We are covering three today, and we'll, be another, we'll see another one in chapter 33 uh, a little later. It would be helpful to remember the uh, historical situation behind these chapters. Uh, these chapters are happening during the reign of King Hezekiah. Ahaz, his father, uh, made an alliance with Assyria because the northern tribes and the little nation of Syria threatened Ahaz in chapter 7. So Ahaz thought about reaching out to Assyria and sent them help or or sent them money and, and made an alliance with them to get out of the trouble he was in from the northern tribes. That tribute that Ahaz made is still going on when King Hezekiah comes to reign. And King Hezekiah has a lofty idea. Let's rebel against Assyria. Let's put that yoke aside. It sounded great. I mean, who would not want to put away the tribute that the the nation of Judah would pay to Assyria? It It was a wonderful thing to do. The problem was the way they thought about revolting against Assyria was by appealing to Egypt. The problem that Ezekiah sought to resolve, namely the bondage to Assyria, that the problem Hezekiah tried to resolve, the way he went about resolving it revealed that they had a deeper bondage, a deeper problem. Aligning himself with Egypt and relying on Egypt's help revealed the true state of the people of Judah and their hearts towards God. In other words, the problem was not merely Egypt. The deeper problem was what their reliance upon Egypt revealed about their hearts towards God. So in today's message, we will look at four points that God reveals through these two messages of warnings in in these two chapters. We'll see that God sees through our rebellion. We'll see that God warns his people of the consequences of rebellion. We'll see that God offers a gracious way out. And we'll see that God calls his people to return to him. Let's look at these four points that that summarize for us the the message of these these two warnings that God gives uh, through Isaiah to his people. God sees through our rebellion. 
Notice how God begins calling his people in, in chapter 30, verse 1. He calls his people as stubborn children. And notice how their stubbornness was manifesting. It was manifesting through independent initiatives. Their stubbornness was manifested through independent initiatives. Verse 1, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. Now, these people had initiative. They had a plan, but it was not God's plan. They had a strategy, but it was not God's strategy. Friend, I wonder if you realize, recognize that self-initiative, without involving God in the picture, can be an indicator of rebellion. Now, in our society, taking initiative, being a self-starter, especially in our city, is a very highly prized value. Uh, having, a, having that ability to start things and do things on your own and getting things done on your own is highly prized by our culture. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, the independent attitude that disregards God is actually an indicator of rebellion. People love having a plan. People love having a strategy. And oftentimes, making that strategy known gets people excited to rally up behind that direction. But friends, if our plans are different than God's plans, they are an indicator of rebellion. In the next verse, we find out what exactly was their plan. Verse 2, they set out, who set out to go to Egypt without asking for my direction. Now, why did they go to Egypt? In verse 2, we find out, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Now, to some of us, this may not be a big deal. We may actually wonder, what was it so bad about reaching out to Egypt and calling out for some help and assistance? If we read ahead in chapter 31, we find out what exactly they were hoping to get from Egypt. Look at, verse, look at chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. What Egypt offered them was horses. Horsemen and chariots. These were the strongest military arsenal at that time uh, in, in, that, in that place. Now in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 16, God said about the king that would reign over his people, he said this, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return to that way again. Black and white in the book of Deuteronomy. And here's Hezekiah sending an envoy with camels, with donkeys, filled with prices, with, with, with money and resources to buy horses, to buy chariots, to rely on Egypt's help to get them out of the trouble against Assyria. Hezekiah's strategy was to reach Egypt to acquire horses and chariots. It's not that the problem was Egypt. Judah's trust was not simply in Egypt. Judah's trust was in horses. 
Judah's trust was in great numbers of chariots. Judah's, Judah's trust was in great numbers of horsemen. And they looked around and said, how many do we have in Judah? Oh, they're not too many. They're not many enough. Who, who could, can we go to to get some more? Oh, Egypt has them. Let's go to Egypt. You see, it's not Egypt that's the problem so much as the reliance on horses, on chariots, on horsemen. So because they trusted in these, they looked to Egypt rather than looking to God for help. For the people of Judah, leaning on Egypt was a manifestation of their spiritual rebellion against God. Judah chose a path of independence, even from God's direction and plans. Friends, rebellion often, often takes this facet. We may say something like, I have to th figure things out on my own. Such an attitude, dear friends, of saying, I got to figure things out on my own, apart from the Lord. Oh, friends, such an attitude is a sign and an indicator of rebellion. Ironically, while Judah was taking the path of being independent from the Lord, they were actually becoming dependent and leaning on someone else, on Egypt. Friend, I wonder if you realize that leaning on something else someone else other than the Lord for strength, for security, for success, for peace may actually be a sign of spiritual rebellion even though you may not think it is. Even though you may not feel like it's spiritual rebellion, the Lord shows it to his people that when his people looked to someone else other than the Lord for what they needed, that it was a sign of spiritual rebellion. Friends, rebellion against God can be manifested simply by ignoring God. Simply ignorance of God can be a sign of our rebellion against the Lord. Sometimes people, sometimes people may have a fear of bringing things to God because they would say, I'm afraid if I ask him, he will not let me do it. Or if I'm afraid if I ask him, I know what he will say. And they might think, hey, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. So they will intentionally ignore asking the Lord. Oh, friends, God sees through that rebellion. God sees that when our ignorance of him is actually because we are rejecting him. Ignorance of fame is not just a superficial thing that we can easily then ask for forgiveness and just plan on the Lord forgiving us so that we're going to do what we want and then we'll just ask for forgiveness. Oh, friends, the Lord sees through that rebellion. He exposes it and he calls it out. When we, when we intentionally ignore him because we don't want to ask him for his guidance, we are rebelling against him. If we keep reading, uh, notice the root of their rebellion. It's their unwillingness to listen to God's instruction. In verse 9, for they are a rebellious people, God says. Lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. This reveals that when Judah chose to ignore the Lord and not to consult him, it was because they knew what he was saying. They were just unwilling to hear it. Notice what they say to those who bring God's word to them. Do not see. 
Do not prophesy what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Wow. Rebellion against God's, uh, the rebellion of God's people is manifested in that they no longer want to hear the truth of God. They prefer to hear smooth things. They begin choosing what they want to hear. They begin choosing what they want to hear. For them, smooth things are more important than hearing from God. A desire for smooth things trumps over hearing God's Word. The ultimate category for such people is not whether something is true, but whether something is pleasant. And it isn't what people, um, what people actually want to know, that the true, absolute truth. And even today, isn't that so? Today, people are not interested in absolute truth. We even, many people today even deny the category of absolute truth. We prefer that which is pleasing to us. Our society is increasingly rejecting and growing in this rejection of, of hearing the Word of God. But this preference, dear friends, is not only for the people outside the church. It's for people inside the church as well. How often, even in church, people evaluate a sermon not by whether or not it was faithful to the Word of God, but by how good it was, pleasant it was, encouraging it was, by how good it made them feel. People may, may be searching for churches that have smooth programs and pay little attention to whether or not what that church teaches is God's Word in its fullness or in, its, in, in faithfulness. Friends, before we begin rebelling openly against God, we begin rebelling quietly in our hearts as we choose to follow what is pleasant and smooth rather than what is true. God's Word. In verse 15, we hear another indication of their rebellion. Here's what God promised them through the prophets in verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Now what a promise that was. He told them that the way they could be rescued was that through the notes, was through returning. Remember Isaiah chapter 7, when Isaiah met Ahaz at the pool and told him, return to the Lord. Give up your mechanisms and strategy to rely on Assyria against your enemy. Did they do it? No, they didn't. God was saying to them, return to me and don't try to save yourself. Rest Rest from your efforts to save yourself. In the next line, we see that God promised, um, promised to actually give them uh, strength. He said the source of their strength would be in quietness and trust. The source of their strength would be in quietness and trust. Resist the urge to fix your problem on your own. Get quiet before God and seek His face, trusting Him. These four Four verbs, four actions God asked His people through the prophets. Return, rest, be quiet, trust. These were actions that showed whether or not they truly believed in God. But they were unwilling. How simple these actions were. Had God asked Him something difficult, perhaps we might have understood 
why they would have been unwilling. But perhaps these actions were difficult. Perhaps that's, a, that's the issue. That's the challenge. They found it easier to trust themselves. They found it easier to trust what they could see. They found it easier to trust what they could control. They found it easier to trust what they could pay with their money. Notice what they did. But you were unwilling. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. They wanted it their way. Friend, when we rely on what we can or what we can count uh, or what we can control, we are in danger of rebelling against the Lord. What would, what would it look like in your life to choose a path of returning and resting, of quietness and trusting? Is there an area in your life where you have chosen the opposite path? You may not be trusting in physical horses. You may not be trusting in physical chariots. But you got your horses and you got your chariots. And I'm not talking about Weston Reese or Cindy. I'm talking any one of us, every one of us have our, quote, horses and chariots that we prefer to trust in. What are they for you? Realize this. They're always going to be the easier path. They're always going to be the default inclination of your heart. Trusting in the Lord, being quiet before Him, resting in Him and in, in what He is providing is going to be the more difficult path. Judah chose what was easier at that time. I want to challenge you to think, what is, what is it for you? I remember what I, God told um, the people in, in, in Isaiah 28, 16, whoever believes will not be in haste. Is there any sinful haste in your life? A haste that is caused by the fact that you are not resting in the Lord. God exposed the rebellion of their hearts. God saw through their rebellion. The, next, the, next sec, the second point God does here is God warns his people of the consequences of rebellion. God warns his people of the consequences of rebellion. In our text, God reveals these consequences and tells God's, his people what they should expect because they have turned away from the Lord. And we see two categories of consequences. The first one is in verse 3. Shame, humiliation, and disgrace. Verse 3 says, Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. In verse 5, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Have you heard how, many, how often this word shame is repeated? And then alongside with humiliation and disgrace. Friends, sin always causes in us shame. And it brings us to shame. It brings us sooner or later to humiliation. And it brings sooner or later disgrace. Instead of the attention and approval that we seek instead of the security and the safety we long for and provide for by our own hands, the path of sin brings us the opposite. It brings us humiliation and disgrace. And whenever we experience shame, 
humiliation and disgrace. Know that it is the result of some sort of rebellion against the Lord. Then in verse 6 and 7, God warns them that Egypt's help would be worthless and empty. Their help may look impressive at first. It may look like a huge wall of protection, which will collapse because of a breach. It will look like a, a potter's vessel that looks beautiful, useful in any way, until it's broken and shattered, and you can't even use a piece of that broken uh, pottery to move some fire from one place to another or to, or to move a, uh, some water from one place to another. It'll be totally useless. Shame, humiliation, and disgrace. In the second category of consequences, as if that alone was not enough, the second category of consequences is destruction. Destruction. Look at verse 13. Therefore, this iniquity shall be upon you. Friends, we think that rebellion uh, will get us out of a problem. We think that our ways of fixing things will be the solution. God says it's going to be the very reason that brings you to destruction. Isaiah gives a few images of that destruction. We saw the image of a, of a wall broken down. We saw the image of a pottery uh, totally shattered. God reveals to them that their greatest threat is not Assyria. Their greatest threat is their own sin and rebellion. That will fall upon their own heads. Then in Isaiah, he gives other images of a thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Total abandonment. Total abandonment. Problem, friends, the problem we often have when we are tempted to rebel against the Lord is that we don't believe, we don't believe that rebellion will fall upon our own head. We buy into the lie that rebellion is the way out of the problem, and God says rebellion will crush us. Rebellion will turn against us. The third point that God gives to his people in this passage is that God offers a gracious way out. God offers a gracious way out. Look at verse 18. And it's as if the whole attitude of the passage turns with verse 18. If up to this point the focus was on, on people and their rebellion, from verse 18 to 33, the focus is on the Lord. Look at what Isaiah says about the Lord. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. What an unexpected message to people whom the Lord has described as rebellious and stubborn children. Here's God waiting to be gracious to you. Friends, this is one of the amazing characteristics about God. He sees through rebellion. He warns us of the consequence of rebellion. But he's going to provide a way out of it. And he's waiting to be gracious. Friends, if any of you are currently in any state of rebellion against the Lord, ponder anew upon this truth about God. He longs, he waits to be gracious to you. The bad news for Judah is that the Lord waits to be gracious. Their rebellion will bring them to ruin. But God will be waiting 
for their consequences to run their course. And then he will extend his people mercy. He will be gracious to his people, but when? Look at the rest of verse 18. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. What does it mean that God will first exalt himself? And why does he have to exalt himself first before he shows mercy? Well, in Judah's case, it meant that God will destroy their idols. God will first have to show his supremacy and majesty over all those things in which Judah trusted and relied upon. It meant that God will first bring their idols low so they would see God's majesty. And when they will see God's majesty, then God will have mercy upon them. When some people want to receive God's mercy while still rejecting God in his majestic nature, we can't have it both. You, gotta have bo- you, you, you can't have them both separate. I'm sorry, you can't have them separated. You've got to have them together. God shows his mercy at the time when he shows his majesty. When, people, when God exalts himself, his motivation is to show his rebellious people mercy. Why? Because they have forgotten the Lord. They have forgotten his greatness. And the rest of this chapter, God will remind his people of his greatness. Three images that God gives his people to remind them of his greatness, of his majesty, of his exaltation. God will be to his people as a teacher. In, in, verse, um, in verse 19, we see this promise, first of all, that people will, start dwell, will dwell in Zion again. That God will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. Can you imagine those of you who are waiting for God to answer a prayer? that he has not yet been answering. You've been praying for years. He hasn't yet answered. God says he will bring a time when he will answer the prayer and the cry of his people as soon as he hears it. He will be gracious to his people. And God presents himself, he says in verse 20, and the Lord will give you bread, while the Lord will give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or to the left. In other words, when you are tempted to go astray, the teacher's voice will be heard again, and you will pay attention to him, and you will scatter. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and gold and metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, be gone. Why? Because you're listening to the voice of the teacher. This is what Judah has failed to do. They have not listened to the voice of their Lord. They have gone after their idols. And the Lord says, here's how I'm going to show my majesty. Here's how I'm going to exalt myself when I'm going to change you. I'm going to exalt myself by changing your circumstances, by changing your hearts, and you will start listening to my voice. And if that is not a good enough news, he goes on in, in verses uh, 26 and 27, God describes himself as a doctor who binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blows. God presents himself as a doctor who will heal up the brokenness that he has caused his people. And then thirdly, the third way God presents himself in his majesty is that he is their defender. Oh, friends, God shows in, in verses 27 through the end, God shows that he is able to defend his people 
And the pictures of the, of the ability of God to defend his people are amazing. Notice what God use, uses to protect his people. Verse 27. His lips are, like, are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire, and his breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction. Friends, God does not need the horses of Judah or the horses of Egypt to destroy the nations. What does God need to destroy the nations like with a sieve of destruction? What does God need? Only that which comes out of his mouth. Lips, breath. Well, friends, God does not need military arsenal to destroy the nations. If Judah would have only known that, of course, the God told them before, but they didn't buy it. They didn't believe it. That's why they went with their horses. That's why they went with their chariots. They missed to see that God was going to be their defender. Today, we are afraid of nuclear bombs getting into the hands of North Korea. Oh, friends, God does not need nuclear bombs to sift the nations. All he needs is what comes out of his mouth. We believe that. Isaiah gives more details about how the Lord will act against Assyria. In verse 31, it gets specific now. Verse 31, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with this rod. In chapter 31, Isaiah gives a comparison between the Lord and the Egyptians. And Isaiah says, listen, the Egyptians are men. They're not God. They're, their horses are flesh. They're not spirit. In verse 4 of chapter 31, Isaiah gives a picture of how God will be like a lion who is not frightened by a few shepherds who try to scream before him. This week, Ryan helped me get that picture. Um, in, in, in seeing, in seeing in, on, on National Geographic or some of these uh, geography or uh, discovery channels, uh, images about lions and when people might come try to scare a lion with sound or with, with, a, with a stick. And, you know, the lion just sits there. Not scared at all. Ryan, thank you for pointing that out. It was there. I just didn't see it. But that picture of God sitting, protecting his people, he's not scared about anything that the enemies would bring against his people. And then God is also presented as, as birds hovering, birds who are hovering over a place. God is, God is presented as, as, as hovering over Jerusalem. But then in verse 8, God, uh, Isaiah gives another specific detail about how God will defeat the enemy of Assyria. Verse 8 in chapter 31. And the Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And if we turn to, to chapter 38, we find out Israel did not have to fight against Assyria. The angel of the Lord did it all. All this will be a manif manifestation that God's fire was among his people. This is the way out of the rebellion, my dear friends. To see the greatness of God and the God who is graciously waiting, graciously wanting his people to turn in their reliance away from their horses, away from their chariots, away from whatever they would want to rely on their own. Waiting for his people to turn back to rely on him. Why? Because he is a great teacher. He is a great doctor. He is a great defender who will bring his people the freedom that they need. A God who comes to his people 
as their defender, as their doctor, as their teacher. But all this promise of grace requires God's people to turn to him. So the final point we have in this passage is that God calls us to turn to him. In chapter 31, the emphasis zooms in on only one imperative that we see in these, in these chapters. Look at verse 8 of 31. 31.8. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. There is a way out of rebellion, my dear friends. And that way out of the rebellion is to turn to the Lord. God's people in the Old Testament have revolted against the Lord. But the Lord commanded them through his prophets to turn to him over and over again. Notice what the result of this turning to the Lord is. Look at verse 7. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Friends, what does turning to the Lord look like? What does it involve? What does it mean to repent? By the way, repentance and turning to the Lord is the same idea. Here's how you know when true repentance has taken place. We will turn away from our idols. We will cast the idols away. There's no genuine turning to the Lord without casting the idols away. That's why in Ephesus, when God's people heard the gospel in the New Testament and were saved, what did they do? They turned away from darkness and they burned up the books of sorcery and magic. Why? Because they were casting off their idols. Friends, there's no turning to the Lord without turning away from idols. You can't turn to the Lord in a genuine way and keep your idols at the same time. This goes back to the very first commandment, the Ten Commandments. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. The reason why Jesus called the young rich ruler to give up all his possessions was not because Jesus was teaching a gospel by, by paying the price of, of money. No, Jesus knew that that young man had an idol of his wealth. And Jesus called to give up the idol in order to follow him. A true turning to the Lord results in turning away from our idols. I love how one commentator said, repentance is radical. It's not just giving up this or that sin, but it's a complete turnabout in our stands toward God. And when our repentance is radical, it will be seen through radical consequences. Friends, these two chapters, these two chapters, God exposed the rebellion of his people in various forms. God always wanted to help his people see their true condition, even though they did not see themselves as such. God also warned his people of the consequences of their rebellion. But God offered a gracious way out. Friends, if you're here today and you're still in your rebellion, in your sin, in your darkness, in your intentional ignorance of God, if you're intentionally staying ignorant of God, recognize that is a rebellion. Turn away. Turn to the Lord. I would love to talk to you more if you'd, if you'd like to do that. I'd love to talk to you more after the service. Or I encourage you to talk to someone who perhaps invited you to come to church this morning. But I wonder what keeps you away from turning to the Lord. Are there any particular idols that you cherish or trust more than God who knows all things? In this passage, God shows us why he is more worthy to be followed. He is more worthy to be trusted than any of the idols that we could attach ourselves to. I want to close my 
message this morning with the words of Jesus, who said in one of his sermons, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you enable your people to turn to you full-heartedly so that you may indeed give us the rest that we cannot get on our own. May you be our quietness. May you be our strength. May you be our joy. May you be the place, the object of our reliance. In the name of Christ, we pray for his glory and honor.